welcome to episode 16 of the sweet spot on a farm today we're going to continue a little bit with the theme of hypnotism and i welcome another guest who is a hypnotist a magician a personal coach trainer mentor i don't know what else um i probably can't even cover it all his name is liam o'neill um, aka the prove it guy hey Hello. guys how are you thank you for having me on thank you for um agreeing to <laughs> be on this podcast um, you're very welcome how are you today i'm good very good uh enjoying this lovely weather that we are having ireland's first summer that we're getting so well you took the enjoyment of the weather to another level because um, guys i have to tell you i arrived in oma i pulled into car park and here comes liam uh greet me coming across the car park barefoot yeah i don't like shoes as much as possible i won't wear shoes and it's not even the weather i will do this i do it all the time like 24 7 uh, except when i'm on stage and even when i'm on stage i wear fancy shoes on stage but I will find an excuse to take my shoes off as I'm explaining something. I don't know, I'll just mix something up so I can have my shoes off and then there's too much effort to put them back on so then I can be on stage with no shoes on as well. Probably because my background is in martial arts, whenever you're explaining everything that I do, I used to go by the term vagabond. So a vagabond is someone that uses skills of his mind and body to earn money because I didn't want a real job anymore. I did bar work for 13 years and didn't enjoy it, so decided I would invent my own job and being a martial artist, a vagabond, seems appropriate. So I would demonstrate by like walking on broken glass and like breaking bricks and tiles and stuff. So I needed my feet out because walking on broken glass on shoes just doesn't really do it for people. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's completely another level of, of barefoot walk. But um, you're not the only one, actually, I, I've met uh, in, the, in the recent months um as if you remember scott riley of causeway living he is doing some barefoot walking as well and of course if you were following wildfoot um, and yeah. recently the thousand was a thousand k around ireland mm. walking barefoot and that's a complete that that's totally crazy because he completed it a week ahead of the schedule so he did it in three weeks that's brilliant. he must have walked over 40k a day that is something i think if, if anyone's into health and fitness and just improving their body then they should try barefoot walking even if it's just out in your garden or somewhere because the connection that you feel to not to get all spiritual or anything but the connection to the earth that you feel is much stronger but plus just for the body because you're manipulating your feet a lot of people i would work with their feet cross over like their toes don't separate because they're always cramped in shoes so whenever you start to walk barefoot, you open that hole up and it opens your whole system up. But if you want to be spiritual about it, it's just a much nicer. Like no one walks on the beach wearing shoes. It's the freedom, isn't it? Mm. I actually, when I get to work, I take my shoes off and I walk all day at work, just barefoot or in my socks. But it's it's just really, really nice feeling not to have your feet cramped, tied, closed in shoes. And actually what you mentioned with the with the toes being kind of crossed over together when my mom was in a hospital before she died i um, noticed how bad her feet were when her big toe was completely glued on yeah. the top of her index toe but it was so bad and she said it wasn't painful because she had been so used mm -hmm. to it for years but it's definitely from years of wearing really tight high heel shoes that are so narrow yeah i i never wore high heel shoes I, i'm Either very I. much against it <laughs> well oh funny <laughs> <Aren't> you really <laughs> not even a 
on stage. <laughs> no, and I was a pole dancer for years, so. <laughs> no. <Nah. laughs> but yeah, that's that's one thing. I'm I'm always been against high heel shoes because I think they're just they're just so unhealthy. It's the way. Shortens it shortens your Achilles tendon. Which is another thing, like I, I work a lot with kids as well, and it's one of the things I would come in, parents come in and say, like, why is my child always walking on its toes? And my first question is, do they have heelys? Are they always rolling, like, are they walking about with heelys all the time? So they're not using the Achilles tendon properly, so it starts to tighten and strengthen in the wrong position. So that's why they end up, so later on it creates more and more damage. So just taking your feet out in general, I think, like, most of my clients, I tell them to roll, no matter what's wrong, them roll a tennis ball on their foot just to massage their foot. And even if you're not spiritual, I didn't get into barefoot walking in a spiritual way. I watched um, Die Hard. <laughs> and when he got off the plane, he was told by the guy to make fists with his toes. So he took his feet, shoes off and made fists with his toes and he made it look amazing. So I was like, I must try that. So then I st- I, that's what got me into it. And then he walks in broken glass too. So sort of a weird circle way of getting into what I got into was Die Hard and not the spiritual. Wow. Well, you got to start somewhere, I suppose. Yep. <laughs> But um, anyway, I have so many questions for you and your story it really is totally random, amazing <laughs> and it, it takes you to all sorts of places. But let's start with a TED Talk. So I first heard of you um, last year. Was it last year or at the start of this year? And mm-hmm. I fitness show. I saw you there and I saw your talk and then I noticed that your name popped up on Facebook business group I'm a member of. Yeah. And... I saw your post about a TED talk that you did a few years back and I watched that TED talk mm-hmm. and I thought, oh my God, this is amazing. There are not that many Northern Irish people who actually did a TED talk and yours was really, really good. And then when I interviewed Turan about hypnotism, a couple of days after I released the podcast, he got in touch with me and he was like, you need to talk to Liam. <laughs> <laughs> and then I realized that's that's you you're the guy from an eye fitness show and you're the guy who did the TED talk and i really wonder because you're you're really young for yeah, all I, the years of you have such an amount of experience and you know somebody so young with such a huge variety of experience and everything that you have to offer i don't mm-hmm. know how you managed to cram it in in such a short space of time because you God, you must be what mid-20s thanks no i am 34 Oh, really? Yeah. Guys, this guy looks amazing. Whatever he's doing, you need to do that. Thank you. Uh, I've been bald since I was 21, so I looked older at the start than I, I'm, I'm reverse aging. I'm Benjamin Button. <laughs> um, how did I get into the TED Talk? Is that how what you're... Did, what I want to know is what events gave me the whole journey? Because there must have been a lot of things that happened that led you to giving such an amazing TED Talk. I think school is the first place to start because one of the things I get asked a lot and I, I work with like young offenders and people and they'll always say, but you've got qualifications, you've your GCSEs and, and probably got a master's and a doctorate or whatever. And I don't even have a GCSE. I wasn't the best student at school. Um, in fact, I was allowed inside one classroom in my whole building. And that was basically just so they would know where I was at all times. So I would go in in the morning. My mom's only rule for school was go to it. She should have specified that I should do something when I was there, but her it was just show up. So I showed up every day and just sat on a radiator outside the classroom um, and just spent maybe four years sitting there 
like the first year, you sort of first year, you, you do what you're supposed to do. So I left school with nothing, no qualifications or anything. Went to the tech with my mate because he was too afraid to go to the tech on his own. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I ended up getting kicked out of that as well. I used to be a wee bit angry when I was younger, so I would like flip the lid pretty quickly. Then I ended up working in a shop and a kung fu magazine came in. So this is where it gets weird. A kung fu magazine came in. I was told to send it back because it wasn't ordered. And I read it instead and decided that that's what I wanted to do with my life. <laughs> and one of my friends was real into Kung Fu, which I didn't know, and he lent me a Jackie Chan movie called Drunken Master. I watched it back to back about four times and decided this is it. So I went back to the magazine and worked the next day and found a number on the back of it for a Shaolin club in London called the Nam Yang Pugilistic Association. Pugilistic is a word I couldn't even say at the time. What does it mean? No idea. <laughs> Never, never bothered looking into it. There was a wee kid we used to teach, and she used to call it the Pugilistic Association. <laughs> so I thought that was brilliant. So I, I, that was on a Tuesday. The magazine came in. Wednesday, I rang the number. I'd never been away from home by myself. I'd never done anything like that. And by the Friday evening, I was in London in a kung fu club, not having a clue what what was going on or anything about it. So I studied back and forward with them, and then I ended up moving over. I. I became very good at the application because where I grew up, you sort of just bigger boys would make you fight each other just for sport. So they would just say, right, Liam, you're going to fight whoever. And me and my brother used to batter each other because we loved the WWF and we didn't know it was fake. So you just kicked each other around the place. So martial arts just, I became quite good at the fighting aspect, which a lot of the other guys, they were okay at, but they didn't really, they'd never had any real world experience and they never really studied it. They liked the flow and the movement and, and the, because I still had a wee bit of anger, I didn't really understand the Tai Chi and the, the boring stuff, like breathing. Who needs to breathe? Was what I used to think. So I lived in London. And for the first while, I lived with my instructor and his mum, uh, Sheila Armstrong. She was my Tai Chi instructor. And she's a, I use her as an example all the time because a lot of people will tell me that they're too old for exercise. Sheila was a primary school teacher and then at 66 retired and then started Tai Chi. So she did nothing beforehand. And then became one of our instructors and used to travel to Singapore and all around the place doing demonstrations and things. So anyone can do it. You just have to start doing it. Then I moved out, but I was very poor when I moved out. So I was living on, I'd bought a bag of rice from one of the stores. So I was living on it and I was stealing red sauce so- or borrowing red sauce from McDonald's. <laughs> Because I couldn't afford anything else. So that's what I was living on for ages. And then when I started to earn a wee bit of money, I moved in with a magician. And the magician, uh, Steve Shackleton, he showed me a, a trick and I was just blown away by it. And decided I should learn magic. I coaxed him after three weeks of just, I'm very stubborn, three weeks of just constantly at him. He eventually showed me one. So then I studied it for a long time. and noticed that the more you know about magic, the more you learn about people. So I started to learn about people's body language and the way people use words and, and confidence and how they look. And I noticed that around me that there was a lack of confidence just in general and everyone I met. Like it was very rarely you'd meet people that were super confident all of the time uh, or super positive all of the time. They always had worries going on in the background. So I decided to study that. And as I was performing magic, people would ask me, can you hypnotize? It just seems to be a thing. If you're a magician, you're a hypnotist. So for about a year, I pretended I was. People would ask me and I would go, yeah. And I would do fake hypnosis. I would, like, they would pick a card and then I would make them forget what the card looked like and all. And it turned out that what I thought was fake when I met Anthony Jackwin, who was my instructor, turned out that what I was doing was hypnotizing them. I just didn't know I was doing it. 
I thought people were playing along when I stuck them to the table or when I made them forget things. I thought they were just being really polite because I was performing. Uh, turned out I was actually hypnotizing. Then someone asked me, could I help them stop smoking? Very first one I ever did, again, I had done stage and street hypnosis. So I didn't know anything about therapy hypnosis. So I just thought, if I can make someone forget the card that they're thinking, I can make them forget that they're a smoker. So I decided to make them forget how to hold a cigarette and how to light a lighter. So I handed them the cigarette and the lighter, and they didn't know, they couldn't register what to do. I know now that what I did create was a pattern interrupt. So I created a pattern interrupt. Then then I filled that gap that their brain was trying to look for how do I smoke with because you're not a smoker, that's why you don't know how to do it. And that's the first person I ever worked with to stop smoking. But I had completely made it up as I was going along. It's probably unethical if you were... Let's hope they're not listening. <laughs> oh, they're not sm- They still don't smoke. They're still not smokers. They know I told them years later. I was like, oh, you wow. still don't smoke. And I had not a clue what I was doing. <laughs> but it worked. Like my, my random way of doing it uh, worked. But again, now I know, I understand how it all, why it all worked at the time. I didn't have a clue. So then I started to do martial art demonstrations i've been doing them for for a few years as well and with the club around chinese new year i would i was the one that went up and spoke because the first one i went to and they all know this i told them was was born like we they would talk complete nonsense and then break a brick but they had bored people so much that by the time they broke a brick no one cared they were so bored like they would start it with do you think i get bullied which is a terrible thing to ask kids because you know what kids are like they're gonna go yeah look at you which used to happen all the time and that would throw the speaker so one day we were doing a talk and one of the ladies that talked for us was super boring and i started to do jump and spin kicks over her head behind her and land and i, I could land very light so I, all the kids would laugh and she would turn around to see what was going on and i would turn around as well to see what was going on and this went on like her talk was about a minute and a half before she broke a brick. And I was doing jump, spin, kicks, and all sorts of messing about behind her. So she thought her talk was going amazing. <laughs> so then we, we changed the whole talk. And I noticed that, that kids then would come up and speak to us after about getting involved in the club and about how they're being bullied and what they should do. And that led me into doing talks in schools that were about empowering children rather than just, look how amazing I am, I can break a brick, which was basically what we were doing. Like, we would have went on stage and kicked each other and and hit each other and broke stuff off each other. But we never really put that across as, you can learn that as well. So that's how I transitioned into that. So that's where the Vagabond came from. I transitioned into that. I started to mix magic and martial arts with, like, inspirational, motivational speaking. And then again, people, one, people didn't know what a Vagabond was, so I always had to explain it. And two, they thought I was special, but I'm not. I just study. Like, I did nothing at school, and now all I do is study all the time. So I ended up studying all of that. I studied the magic and decided that I wanted to learn more. So I use social media different than a lot of people did at the start. A lot of people used to just to go scroll through stuff and look at things. I looked for who is who's already at the level I want to be at. So, for example, I, my memory wasn't great, so... People would meet me, I would look at them, they would say their name, and it would be like a wee voice in my head would go, don't listen, you're not going to remember anyway, it doesn't matter. So I decided I want to improve my memory. So I started a study, and I started studying a couple of wee books, Harley Lorraine's book, things like that, and then decided this was a waste of my time. There's someone already can do this. So I found Ben Cardall, uh, he's a Sherlockian, and... I just contact him. He's a what? A Sherlockian. He is basically the closest thing to Sherlock Holmes. You should follow him. He, he's like, the stuff he does is crazy. Um, he's actually entering the Memory World Championships this year. It'll be good to see what he does there. But his his memory work and his reading of people 
is the best I've ever seen. So rather than me trying to learn, you know the way whenever you're trying to learn anything, cooking or anything, you, you go through a lot of mistakes before you get to where you want to be. So I just didn't have time for that. So I went to someone that's way beyond where I even need to be and studied under him. Then the hypnosis, I studied under Anthony Jackwin and Craig Galvin and looked up Gary Turner's work. Um, Turin named a couple of these guys as well because it's faster that way than me studying everything. So I find rather than finding out what I need to learn to get to them, I find out what they can teach me and what they're reading to improve what they're doing. So then I'm taking a step ahead. Then the cold reading, I found uh, Ian Rowland, who's also the guy that helped me with the book. He was the ghostwriter for my book. So that's when you were asking earlier, how, how do I have the time being so young, even though you thought I was younger than I am? The reason I have the time is because I go to the best people in the field and most of them are happy to, as long as you go to, if, I, if you came to me to learn about, say, meditation, I meditate three times a day. And I've been doing that for maybe 12 years. So if you came to me and you just want to learn about meditation and you have no background, I will give you a, a, the start. And then if you come, I will tell you, go away for three weeks, come back with this. If you come back in three weeks and you've done nothing and you tell me it doesn't work, I just won't bother with you because I know you're not going to make any effort. But if you come back in three weeks and say, right, I studied that, I'm really good at this. These are my questions and what would I do next? Then I'm happy to help. And I found that with every other person I've ever contacted that's the top of the field. If you do your homework and you have a bit of knowledge before you get to them, they're really happy to help. So that speeds up your learning. So instead of you studying for weeks on how to sit to meditate, you can go to me and I can go you sit however you sit comfortably. And then I just got approached about the TED Talk because the person that was setting it up had heard of me. And a lot of the people, like when I did my TED Talk, this is the conversation that you saw me in was one of the ladies was there. I can't remember her name, sorry. Um, but it was very deep. Like a lot of people talked about suicide and, and depression, and which is all well and good. And I think it needs to be talked about a lot. And I talk about it a lot as well. But there has to be like the next step. So I don't like when people go on and tell a suicide story and, and how they, they felt this way and then they just leave it hanging and they leave their talk and everyone's going, I feel like that and you have given me no advice on how to get further. Like I used to have anxiety towards food. So I talk about that and I talk about how I overcame it. And I overcame it just before I learned any of this stuff by, again, just pure stubbornness and forcing myself to do the stuff. I'm very much a yes person. I will try anything and if it works, brilliant. If it doesn't work, I'll learn something from it and then go on. So I ended up doing the, the TED Talk. I remember talking to the guy before I went on stage and saying to him, look, I'm opposite of everyone that's just spoke. Everyone's talking about real depressive stuff. I'm going to go on and tell you you can achieve whatever you want in life and I'm going to demonstrate that with crazy demonstrations. And he was like, oh, go on. He'd never seen me before. He just had heard of me. He was like, go on ahead. And my whole talk was, even the start, so I talk a lot about how you can overcome things and... and redevelop yourself in any way you want and the the talk I should have had on the background a big picture that said limitation is a mirage which spells my name and that was the whole premise of my talk but they had given me the wrong the background and they couldn't find my picture so my background was wrong so I had to reshuffle the start of my talk and then they told me the mic was sitting in front of the table so when I got out there was no mic either so I had to reshuffle how because I prepared to speak into a mic so not project so I just shuffle all of that before I even started my talk. So I was rewriting in my head the start of my talk before I even got out on stage. And if you watch my talk, instead of coming out at an angle, I come out in like a wee L shape to give myself more time. Because in my head I'm thinking, what are you going to... Your first line makes no sense. What are you going to say? Thankfully my mouth just 
says what needs to be said. And it was about two, two or three years ago, I think now. There was a lot of ranting there. So. so you actually sort of answered my following question, but I'd like to elaborate more on... Um, let's do before and after TED Talk. Yeah. <laughs> so if you were to compare yourself before the TED Talk or before you got to be the person who were able to give the TED Talk and to the person you are today... How different and what led you to become the person you are today? The difference is probably, one of the questions I get asked a lot in my talks is, how much of this is bullshit? So people will say to me, claim you're, you're positive and you focus on the good and everything. How much of that's just lies? Like when you go home, do you just sit at home and cry? And like I don't, I am a positive person, but I, I wasn't a long time ago. I used to be, very, like I said before, I was quick to anger. And I knew a lot about martial arts and things like that. So whenever I got to anger, I could have done things that most most others couldn't have done. And, and I used to have to use it in, in the bar trade where you'd use control and restraint. And I would have always controlled with pain rather than just control. So one day I was getting grief in the bar and a guy said that he called my mum fat. Which, if you called me anything, I didn't care. You spoke about my family, I, I got angry. <laughs> so he called my mum fat. And by the time I got around to the front of the bar, to him, he called her skinny. So then I worked out, he was just saying words. It was like a wee penny drop moment. All of the study, all the martial arts and the meditation and all, I was doing it because I had to do it, because I wanted to be a great martial artist. All of the relaxing and staying calm and all of the stuff I thought was nonsense, I was just doing it because my instructor... Like Sheila used to make me stand out in her garden on one foot and she'd come and hit me with a stick every so often to make sure I was stable. And it was just annoying me and I was just thinking, this is wasting my time. I want to punch stuff. I want to be like I want to be able to use this martial art for what it's for. And you're always taught that the more you learn, the less you'll use. I didn't believe that. I believed I would become great and I would just use all of it. Um, so I just realized he was just saying stuff. He was saying, your mum's fat. And then I said to him, like, for all you know, my mum is fat or skinny. You've done both. And then he just called her stupid. And then in my head, it was like he may as well have said, uh, you're wearing a jumper and you're holding a cup. It just didn't make any sense anymore to me. So he just, and he ranted. And that was the first time I ever learned about fighting fire with water. And I just thanked him. And I said, think, like when he called her fat, I said, oh, she could probably tidy up her diet a wee bit, you know. And then he said she was skinny and I just repeated it. She probably tidied her diet a wee bit, put on a wee bit of weight, you know. And he just ran out of things to say. And ended up just staring at me and then leaving the bar. And I remember the, the bouncers, I used to train the, the door staff and control and restraint. And they used to just watch to see what I would do. They would never help. They would just watch. And they were like, oh, we thought you were going to do something cool. And I was like, that was the coolest thing I've ever done. I was like, I just talked down an angry drunk. But like, I was amazed. I was blown away by that. So then I started meditating and thinking, what is the point of meditating? Like, what am I doing here? I'm just sitting here quietly. And then studied all of that. So before the TED Talk, I would have been super nervous. I'm still nervous before every talk, even before coming and doing a podcast. I think you have to be, otherwise you don't like it. But I, the nerves would have took over and I would have talked fast and, and like been fidgety and thought, right. And then, then because I was doing that, like when I got my brother on stage to hit me with a sledgehammer, he would hit me. Hang on, hit you with what? I, it, it's some, yeah, well... <laughs> Whenever I do any talks, if I'm doing any demos, because some people can get hurt. The kick in the groin one I do, people can get hurt. I can get hurt and so can they if they kick me wrong. So I usually bring my brother just so if he gets hurt, it's his own fault. And he's my brother, <laughs> he can get away with it. But one of the demos we do is he puts breezer blocks on me and smashes them with a sledgehammer. And then we used to just do that. And I did a thing in the, in the town at Halloween. And the kids that were all there just started shouting, hit him with a sledgehammer. 
and we were very excited on stage. So my brother just like, will we? And I was like, I try it. So we hit me a couple times with the sledgehammer. So that's now one of the routines that we we also do. But they would have been very, he would have been very nervous and excitable, and things would have went wrong a lot more. But now they don't because I just noticed. So that was just leading up to my TED talk. Then I would have been doing meditating for a few years by that stage. But before that, I would have been nervous on stage, and then the crowd would have been a wee bit nervous, especially when I was going to do something crazy like break a chapstick with my throat the chances of it going through and killing me were higher because I was nervous and psyched and then the, the it, it didn't get the same response I would would get now because people know I'm sort of in control because I look like I'm in control so before the TED talk I, I would have still had a wee bit of anger and I would have felt like a lot of the time I was lying because I was telling people that you can be whatever you want but I wasn't what I wanted to be because I was still going and doing a wee bit of bar work and I was still doing bits and pieces and now since since that since the talk and again because people think and I thought it too that it like it was a massive deal to get there I never I thought it was in my four-year plan and it happened like two years early so then that I realized that making four-year plans are all well and good but you should try to achieve them quicker because you most likely can you're probably aiming too low that's a, a problem a lot of us have is we aim very low and then don't even hit that because we're worried about that so after the that talk my talks just became much better but what I realized by watching myself back and watching a lot of the other guys from Ireland is we're not very good at talking we talk very much, like I was saying this earlier, we talk very, it's very hard to understand, and we roam off, especially if we're in our own town, because then we don't have to think, oh, people know how we speak, so we just ramble. So I hired a, a vocal coach called Marika over in London to improve my stage and, and my vocality when I'm on, my tone and everything. Even you'll notice that me talking now is slightly different from when I talked when we were just talking about what we were going to do, because I'm more clear and... I, and I go into like a mode. So then I started learning about anchors. So now my anchors for staying relaxed, for getting excited, or, or they just work. Like I was working in the addictions unit the other day. So I go in and do talks with uh, people with different addictions. And on the way into it, and the woman's explaining who's going to be there and what we're going to do, I'm able to do all my anchoring, but listen to everything she's saying. So then when I go in, I'm more engaged and instead of going in sort of quiet because she left me for 10 minutes listening to the, the radio in the back room. So I think the difference mostly is how calm and relaxed I am. And when you're calm and relaxed, like stress doesn't really factor into my life anymore at all. No matter, no matter what happens, I can learn something from it. So I don't really, it's annoying to people around me whenever they're like really stressed. I'm very calm. Like on flights, I've helped four people overcome fear of flying that I've never met before and not out of being a really nice guy but just thinking that this is going to be a nightmare of a flight if I have this guy freaking out beside me <laughs> so working with them and it's just my calming how calm I am in general can sort of bring people down to my level as well same as whenever people get nervous people come up to that level you can you can do it just with your presence or you can do it by leaning in when you're talking or slightly rocking when you're talking in a calm place or picking a tone like the way I have done now with a rhythm that is more relaxing as I talk. Now, tell me this. You have a book out. I do. <laughs> tell me about this book. How do, It's the same title as your TED Talk. Yeah. For anyone that hasn't caught on yet, the, the title's Limitation is a Mirage, and the first letter spells lame. So that's why, why we did it. The book 
came from, I went to, Ian Rowland was doing a seminar up in Belfast for magicians and I went to it and everybody was doing magic. I wanted to get to speak to him because he, he's one of the only people outside of, of the UK or outside of America, sorry, to ever work with the FBI. He's a cold reading master, like he's like the guy that you go to if you want to learn cold reading. He just does loads of stuff, he's an amazing guy. So I wanted to befriend him. So that's the one thing about the martial arts stuff I have. I have like such random skills and techniques that I, when everyone was performing magic to the magician and he was, yes, how's it going? He's been very polite and some of it was really incredible magic, but he sees that all the time. So I went up and broke a chapstick with my throat. So I was like, do you want to see something cool? And he was just being very polite. So he said, yes. And I took out a deck of cards and he looked that look of, I wonder what he's, and I put the cards out of the road. And then I took a chapstick and put it at the soft bit at the bottom of your throat and smashed it. And he made me do it again because he thought it was a trick. I did it again, and then we got talking about my life, and he just decided I should write a book. I hadn't read a book till I was 16. The first book I ever read was George's Marvelous Medicine by Roald Dahl when I was 16. Like I used to make up the books and the reading log and everything the whole way through primary school and secondary school. So it took two years to write the book, and it's basically just all my teaching. So it's about motivation, overcoming fear, getting better sleep, better confidence, persuasion, everything that I would teach if we were doing a one-to-one. And the goal of it was to reach more people because I was just not reaching the amount of people that I could because of just time management. I just couldn't reach everyone. So I thought if I wrote the book, then that would um, be much better. The first draft of the book, I wrote it like myself. And then I read it thinking, right, I'll read that like me 10 years ago. And I, me 10 years ago wouldn't have had a clue what I was talking about. It was just all the stuff I had overlooked. And then I remembered teaching a guy a kick one day and he couldn't get the kick. He was doing everything I was saying, but still couldn't get it and I couldn't work it out. So I had to go and sit at the side of the room. I was like, just try it five or six times. And then I realized he wasn't turning his heel, which is a real subtle thing. In my head, it was so natural for me to turn my heel when I did the kick that I never even thought to say it out loud. So when I said, turn your heel, he was able to do the kick. So that's the way I rewrote the book, thinking... What's the stuff people need to know to get to where I am? What's the most important stuff? So whenever you read it, feedback so far has been exactly what I wanted. It's very easily read. And it's not the book that you read and put away. It's a book you read and then you come back going, right, I'm not really sleeping well this week. I wonder what that is. Go back and read it uh, and improve that. Or you're getting anxious about like something I would teach a lot in anxiety is the recognize and describe. So a lot of people are anxious and it's imagined, but it's real to them. So it's an, so it can be an imagined outcome. That what if what if this happens? Then I will die, or that'll make me more anxious, and then I will die. So you recognize it, right? I feel my heart rate going, my breathing's going. Why is it doing that? Probably because I'm anxious. What are you anxious about? I'm not 100% sure, but I don't like being around people. I know it's an anxious thing, and it normally leaves. So then you recognize and describe that. Sounds like a really simple technique, but it works. So you recognize that you're anxious, even if you don't know why just that you are anxious. And so if your breathing's going, then maybe you just need to slow your breathing down. So you describe that to yourself like you're an eight-year-old, and then you calm down. And then so you recognize, describe. So you can keep going back to the book to learn the stuff that, that are in it and to just improve it as you learn a new technique. You can improve it that way or read it just to help you relax. Um, because again, I, I wrote it and with Ian, but I, I aim to have it as if I was reading it to you, which is the next step. I'm turning it into an audio book at the minute. Because a few people I work with can't read. They're complaining that I didn't do that, but it's a lot of work. (laughs) 
so it's just taking time. Uh, it's a big book. I was looking it up because I really want to buy it. And normally I have to apologize. Normally when I interview someone, I already either have had a session with them and know exactly what they do, or I would have read their stuff. And you're kind of an exception because it was a very last minute, so I didn't even have a chance to order it. <laughs> it's my way of getting back on for a second time. So I'll send, I'll send you the book. I've ordered some back because it's, it's sold out twice, which is brilliant, which is more than I expected it to do. So um, they're back on order. So that's why I don't have one for you today. So it should have been here on Friday and they're oh, not brilliant. here. I, and I can't wait to read it because when you said that it's something that you can, you know, come back to all the time, there's only two books so far I have that I go back to. The first one is something people will laugh at because I laughed at it when I heard about that book years ago. And it's, I don't know if you ever heard of The Secret and the Magic yeah. by Rhonda Byrnes. Mm -hmm. When a friend of mine told me about the documentary about was maybe 10 years ago I laughed at it I watched the documentary I was like yeah right and then about six years ago I came across the book my housemate had the book and she had the magic as well so I read the book and I thought actually it's not that funny it's actually quite interesting mm. and then I read the magic and I thought do you know what up to this point I've been an ungrateful bastard throughout my life yeah I need to do this. Mm -hmm. And you know, the moment I started practicing gratitude, my life changed. Yeah. It's like miraculously changed mm -hmm. pretty much overnight. And the magic is the book I go back to at least once a year to remind myself whether I practice my gratitude daily and whether I am turning into ungrateful bastard. Yeah. And the other book is uh, The Body Ecology Diet by Donna Gates. And that's something that helps me time and time again to make sure I'm eating right and that's that's just the two books I kind of dip in and out of all the time so I'm, I'm hoping that I can add something by a local author it would be really That'd be nice. brilliant I think that's great a lot of people start their attitude of gratitude and then think right I've done that and then never go back and make sure that they're continuing to be grateful for whatever it is that they, that you're grateful for and even the secret like a lot of people would talk about it and What's great now is in this country anyway is I, I would have told people to do to read it because it is a good starter. I think one of the problems with, with gratitude work is people just say stuff and they don't do anything about it. But if you do gratitude and anchoring work, you go out of your way to, to remember what good stuff you did in the day. So then your day becomes more positive in general. And I think, again, it's what keeps me positive throughout the day is, is my attitude of gratitude. But also Conor McGregor, the... MMA fighter his sister brought him the secret and he read the secret and he puts that down to to why he decided to create the attitude of Conor, the Conor McGregor that that we all know now that's achieved like world domination and in, in, in the field of fighting so when I work with a lot of underprivileged kids or ex-cons or things like that I will be saying to them like get into this sort of stuff and they'll say oh it's gratitude it's stupid now like what about Conor McGregor and they're like oh he's deadly oh, I love him and some of them are wearing his t-shirts and when we all go to war and all that jazz, you know, look, and did he? He loves the book. He's opened it up more for for more people. But I think it's some, something that people should do is when you find a book that has improved your life, why not go back? Because even I go back and read books that I studied at the start. Now, when I reread them, I learn so much more because you didn't understand half the stuff that was going on whenever you were reading it. So hopefully, you'll add my book to that and. That'd be great. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to reading it. Now, tell me, so all the stuff that you talk about in your book and all the stuff that you incorporate into your coaching one-to-ones, you're kind of mixing everything that you learn. So it's not just hypnotism. It's not just magic. It's not just your martial arts, your training. 
you do everything. Yeah, even like say if you came to me for anxiety, I would use magic to demonstrate. And usually what I do is I start to look like it's going wrong and I start to get nervous and then they get nervous and then we get a wee bit panicky and then all of a sudden the card's in their back pocket or something. And then I'll say, see, it looked like it was going wrong the whole time and everyone was getting nervous and you started to feel my nervousness so so you're building and then, but it was going perfectly correct. Like I do a talk in a school where they think of an animal or an animal or a vegetable or whatever and I, I will try to draw it from their mind and I get it wrong three times and the audience and the children and all look at me like, oh, he's just trying. And then I explain to them that when things are going wrong, there's a good chance you're actually going on a path that's actually going to take you to where you need to be. And then I've drawn, like, like the last one was a cat. So I drew a banana, an Eiffel Tower, and a cross. So when I held them up, it spelled cat. So I was saying, like, look, I'm correct. Even though you thought it was wrong and you were being very polite, it was going right. So And it's happened to me a lot. Like, I've done things that, like, taking jobs or, or things that I think this is not going to help my life. This is stupid. And then I look back and go, I'm, glad, I'm so glad I did that. If I did not do that, if I didn't do 13 years of bar work, I would not be as good as dealing with people, reading what people and seeing their emotions and things like that and, and understanding the words that they're saying. But six years ago, if you had said, would you ever go back to bar work? I would say no, and I would love to wipe that from my whole slate if I could get rid of it. So everything that, that ha- I do believe everything happens for a reason, but you have to look for the reason. You have to be willing. And again, we're especially in this country, we're brilliant at looking for a negative reason. This happened and caused this, and now that's that's it over like relationships and things like that when relationships end people hold on to the end of it like it was that was the whole relationship that one week of end instead of looking at what they learned about themselves through the relationship so when they go into the next one that they can take that with them instead of going in most people go in hurt from the last one and they're so focused on they cheated on me or they did this or whatever that they don't give themselves fully to the next relationship because they're worried about what if it doesn't work I don't know how I get into relationships but you but (laughs) Uh, it comes up a lot in, in my work so I think that everything I learned uh, is in, incorporated in health health and fit so it's not just health and fitness that's what I started in and then that health and fitness was all exercise and then you had to learn about food so my learning about food when I started to teach people about nutrition and stuff like that I was really happy that about 10 years ago a chef was ill and I ended up working in the kitchen I was a barman but I ended up doing the kitchen for two weeks I started just being a just prep and veg but then it got it was really busy, so I ended up getting right up to cooking steaks and filleting fish and just learning everything. Like the it was like a two week intensive chefery course. So then when I started talking about nutrition and food and how to prep food, I had an understanding of how to do all that. So all of it, the magic helps you open your mind because people. So say for example, you you want to achieve something and you think you can't. So then I do a magic trick that you think is impossible, that then proves to you that anything's possible. If you want to become less anxious and I want to improve your sleep to make you more stable and balanced, improving what you eat is a, be- is a good way of improving your sleep. So you have to learn about all of it. So it's all, it all seems random. Like if you drew it out, it seems like a real random mesh of stuff. But whenever you tie it all together, it's all, the whole thing is you benefit in your life, mentally and physically, to be stronger, to achieve whatever you want to achieve. You have to take all of that into, into play. Sorry, folks, to cut it there. Um, This is not the whole interview. There is quite a bit more. So we decided to split it into parts. 
Liam is so easy to listen to and he is a very interesting young man. So if you enjoyed this episode, make sure you tune in next time to hear the rest of it. And if you listened the whole time thinking about what pugilistic means, then I'm here to satisfy your curiosity. I have to confess that after my interview with Liam, I drove home and the whole time, it takes about an hour and a half to drive from Oma to Belfast, I thought, what the hell is pugilistic? Pugilistic is an adjective of pugilist, which means someone who fights with fists. Yep, it's that simple. So there you go. If you wondered what mirage was, it's an optical illusion caused by atmospheric conditions. Now, this word is incredibly important in the context of Liam's book title. Limitation is a mirage. And I can't wait to get my hands on it. And if you'd like to read it too, you can find it and purchase it in both digital and paperback forms on Liam's website. www.limitationisamirage.com At the start, you may have wondered what Liam's martial arts stage performances, motivation speeches, hypnosis and magic has to do with what we talk about on this podcast. What does it all have to do with health? And I believe that Liam has answered it for you at the end. All the techniques he uses with himself as well as his clients, these are all tools helping us to become a better version of ourselves and to achieve what we didn't think possible on a personal level and to achieve a balance. Add some meditation to it, which Liam also mentions, and you have all you need for a calm and balanced mind. Something we talked about with Scott at Causeway Living, who uses the Wim Hof method for the same reason. Healthy mind is a step towards a healthy body and the other way around. And this is why I'm so interested in talking to people like Liam, because there is always something more to learn and I find it incredibly fascinating. Nutrition is also something we need to get right for our healthy body as well as healthy mind. And it's something Liam mentioned briefly, but we will talk about food, nutrition and diet a little bit more in the next part of this interview. Talking of food, Liam has kindly given me two recipes to share with you. You'll hear them both in the second part of this interview, but I'm going to give you one of them now, which also means I'm going to give away Liam's favorite veg. Guys, you'll never believe it, but it's a sweet potato. And Liam is officially one of my top favorite people of all times. No bias at all. Liam's top sweet potatoes recipes are flapjacks and pancakes. And I'm going to leave the pancakes for next time and give you the flapjacks first. So what you need for Liam's sweet potato flapjacks? 100 grams of sweet potato, one fresh squeezed orange, one fresh squeezed lemon, two bananas, one tablespoon of honey, four heaped tablespoons of coconut oil, 60 grams of oats, one teaspoon of pumpkin seeds, one teaspoon of flax seed, handful of cranberries and handful of blueberries. Guys, if you're on a keto diet, this is not for you, but it sounds delicious. Now, how you make it? You cube and steam the sweet potato, let it cool, then blend it with bananas, honey, coconut oil and fresh juice. Mix in the oats and seeds and once it's mixed well, fold in the berries. Cook it at 180 degrees for 45 minutes or until cooked through. Then let it cool, cut in pieces and enjoy. Now, one more thing I'd like to mention about my guest. Liam kept it from us in the interview. He was in the ITV's Ninja Warrior two years ago. If you're a fan of the show, you can find an Astro Herald article about it online. 
It's at alsterherald.com slash 2017 slash 01 slash 12 slash omahs dash ninja dash warrior. I was trying to find a clip online for you, but there is nothing. If you manage to find a clip online of Liam competing on this hit TV show, please let the rest of us know and send me a message or a comment on Instagram or Facebook. Oh, and by the way, Liam's pole dancing comment, it wasn't a joke. He actually is a one-time Irish pole dancing champion. And there is actually a clip of this online. You can find it on YouTube. Sorry, Liam. I just had to. And that's it for this time. As always, remember you can download our shared recipes from the Sweet Spot on a Farm Facebook group or get it from Instagram. If you enjoyed this podcast, keep an eye on the second part of this interview, which will be coming your way in two weeks' time. Have a great couple of weeks, have some sweet potatoes, take your shoes off, and more importantly, stay healthy. Until next time. Bye. As every week, your host is myself, Susanna from The Sweet Spot, Music by Mark J. Adair and artwork by Gemma O'Hagan. Thank you for listening.